0: Well, thank you, Doreen, for your testimony. We truly thank God for you and that God saved your soul and caused you to meet Tom. I'm sure he's thankful for that and brought you out to our body. We look forward to many years of serving together in the ministry of Christ. Thank you, Ben, for your prayers for the body, for us, and for this day. Just a real just encouraging prayer, lifting us up unto the Lord. And for all of you, what a great time in the Word yesterday with uh, Pastor Montoya at the Bible Conference. Um, I was so glad I was not sitting in the front row center, that I hadn't moved to the side aisles. If you were there, you know what I'm talking about. You has a tendency to pick on the people that are sitting in the front rows. Uh, you know how you go to SeaWorld and there's a splash zone? And if you sit there in the first six rows, Shamu will get you wet. Uh, that's how it was like uh, yesterday at the Bible Conference. We were sitting in the front. Pastor Montoya was going to get you. Well, during lunch, we were just talking, and I was kind of smiling, and he looked at me and asked me why I was smiling. Well, I asked him if he remembered when I <clears throat> came to him four years ago and told him that we're planning a church. And he said, Why? Wow, you guys are planning a church. And he said, Who's going to lead this church plant? And I said, Pastor Montoya, I am. And he said, You? <laughs> like, thank you so much for that photo conference confidence, I'm ready to go. <laughs> but by grace, I uh, yes, agree to preach and he's been a dear friend of the ministry for many years now. Hopefully, <clears throat> we will serve and will, I'll be ministered to him by more, more, uh, in the future as well. Well, it was obvious to us, and for those of you who listened through tape, that Pastor Montoya has a clear passion for the gospel. I mean, <clears throat> I just love bold people, don't you? It is just so refreshing. I mean, it is just—I could listen to him all day, just because of his boldness for Christ, boldness for the gospel. I mean, you sense that boldness in his preaching to gang members during a funeral, and there was no exit, and yet he just kept on preaching the word of God. And if I perish, I per- perish. I love that mindset. Now, I believe that if the Apostle Paul the apostle paul himself if he was there yesterday i believe he would be saying amen throughout the messages throughout the sermons because if there is any man who was bold and passionate about the gospel of christ it was the apostle paul would you agree with me that paul was a man who was deeply in love with the truth of scripture and he it is exemplified in the book of acts in his many letters the church's New Testament, his commitment, his fervent desire to proclaim the gospel is clearly seen. Now, after yesterday and after maybe thinking about the Apostle Paul, you might think, Well, James, you know, I'm thinking this, how can I be as bold? How can I have fervency for the gospel? I am timid. I I have fear of man. I am insecure. I desire to be refreshing to others, other believers. I desire, I want to inspire Bob with my life. How can I be as bold as men like Montoya and the Apostle Paul? Well, turn with me to the book of Galatians. And I think in the first ten verses of the book of Galatians, chapter one, we will get our answer. And that if we apply these truths to our lives, we will have such fervency as these men. Now, a quick review of this epistle. The author, of course, is the Apostle Paul. It is his letter to the churches in the region of Asia Minor. It's uh, modern-day Turkey now. At his time, it was called Galatia. It is the only letter of Paul where it is written to several churches. In more than one city. Uh, He is addressing several churches in several cities in this region. Now, it was during Paul's third uh, missionary journey, he passed by this area. Most scholars date the writing of this letter sometime around A.D. 45. Perhaps one of the first letters that Paul ever penned. And a major theme of this gospel is, major theme of this letter is the Gospel of Christ. The Gospel of Christ. That subject is the heartbeat essential to this epistle. In a way, you could see Galatians as a sister letter to the book of Romans. A sister letter. It would be an encouraging study in the future to study these two letters consecutively, um, one after the other. Because in Paul's letter to the Romans, he defended the Gospel theologically. Whereupon he gives a clear definition of what what the Gospel is. The Gospel is a high view of God, sinfulness of man, and salvation by grace through faith alone. Paul's letter to the Galatians defends the implications of the Gospel. He not only gives a clear definition of what the Gospel means... But he defends the implications that we are saved by grace through faith alone. He says that theological commitment is important, but also a practical follow-through of the implications of the gospel is just as important. We we'll look forward to one day doing an in-depth study of this book in the future. But for today's study, I want to draw your attention to Paul's relationship again to the gospel of christ paul's commitment to the gospel of christ it is evident here and from the new testament that the apostle paul loved the gospel he loved the good news of christ i mean he really loved it he loved the truth of it he loved the message of god's great salvation towards undeserving sinners He says in 1 Timothy 1 15 through 17, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And right after that, in verse 17, he gives a doxology. He glorifies God. Praise God for this message, not to Him, King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, forever and ever. Amen. He glorifies God because of the gospel of God. In 2 Timothy 1.11, Paul says that he was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher for the gospel of Christ. It was commissioned to him by God to herald this message to go, go to the public market square to call everyone to hear and to vocalize, articulate and communicate and live high this gospel. Because this gospel is from God and to save sinners. Romans 1.1, he says that He has been set apart. He has been sanctified, consecrated for this one message, the gospel of Christ. That's His purpose. That's His mission in life. He loved it so much that He gladly, He willingly suffered for the Gospel. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. He tells Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my Gospel. As opposed to all the heteros Gospels out there. All the false Gospels. All the other Gospels. Paul says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, raised from the dead. A son of David, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. I mean, he loved the gospel, not just with his fervency, but with his life. And because he loved the gospel so much, he was bold, he was fearless in proclaiming it. That is why he tells Timothy, Second Timothy one eight. Timothy, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of Christ, sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then he says to the Ephesian elders, remember after he was leaving for Rome after he was arrested, Acts twenty twenty four. I mean, what? Here's a here, here are the words of a man who, who, who is committed to the gospel of Christ, who knows his mission in life, who is standing on his hill and will not back down. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. He says, my life is meaningless. I don't care about my life. My only concern is that I complete this task that God has given me. And what is this task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Man, how refreshing. Right? Isn't that just inspiring? This man of God, his boldness in declaring and defending the gospel is clear before the Lord's church. And in the book of Galatians, his passion and boldness again is clearly visible. Let's go to the text and look with me with the first five verses of Galatians 1. Paul writes to them and he says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ, to God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a very simple, a very direct greeting from the Apostle. If you've read his other epistles, Paul had a pattern of greeting in all his letters. He would introduce himself, He would give a word of thanksgiving. He would give words of gratitude. He would exhort them to the church at Ephesus, church at Philippi, the church at Rome. I am praying for you guys. You guys are an encouragement to me. I hope to visit you soon, that we might fellowship face to face. But this letter, there are no such thanksgiving. There is no such words of gratitude. No such words about prayer and about desire to fellowship. He skips all of that. He says, he wastes no time. He cuts the chase. He gets to the meat of the matter. He says, let's set aside the pleasantries. Because of the urgency of the issue of the churches at Galatia deserting the gospel. Paul mentions none of these and he gets to the point. He cries out, what are you guys doing? Verse 6, I am astonished. I am amazed, ASB He is perplexed, he is confused. Now what astonished Paul, what confused Paul, what amazed him? He was astonished that they would so quickly desert the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would turn away and set him aside, and set the message aside. Look at verse 6. I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. Paul is shocked that they would desert Christ. What a bold beginning to a very bold letter. This letter is a stinging letter of rebuke and admonition. It's a letter of confrontation. In Paul's words we sense a healthy measure of righteous indignation and alarm. Paul's displeasure at these churches stewardship of the gospel is unmistakable. And we find here in these verses two reasons for Paul's boldness. How was how it that Paul was so able to be passionate about the Gospel? What gave him such a great love, great fervency for the Gospel of Christ? We find two reasons for Paul's boldness. First of all, point one, it is the only truth that saves a dying world. It is the only truth, the Gospel is the only truth to save a dying world. Now that is a, a radical thought, isn't it? In our postmodern world where truth is relative, where truth is non existent, where truth is unknowable and is always in a constant flux, it's always changing with the times. The radical view that truth exists. And for Paul, the gospel was the truth. Look at verse 7. Paul says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That article is there in the Greek. He calls it the gospel. Not a gospel. Not one of many gospels. Not my version of the gospel. Not my interpretation of the gospel. He says the gospel. The one and only true gospel. Paul is saying by that, that the content of the gospel... These fundamental principles, these cardinal truths of the gospel, are not up for grabs. We don't evaluate the gospel. The gospel is not a; it's not open to debate, not open to dialogue. It is not his form of the gospel, as as opposed to other forms of the gospel that are out there. Paul saying that is not allowed. The gospel is not to be tampered with. We didn't create it. It is the gospel. It is the truth. We aren't allowed to vote on the gospel, dictate which parts we want to keep, which parts we want to delete out. It is that buffet mentality that we have, right? Of many professing Christians. They say, you know what? I'll take heaven. I love heaven. I love these promises of forgiveness, of grace and mercy and kindness of God and God's love. I love John 3.16. But you know what? I'll pass on lordship. Deny myself, take up the cross, follow Christ daily. Oh man, I don't know about that. I'll pass on evangelism. I'll pass on missions. I'll pass on self-sacrifice and obedience. For Paul, that is nonsense. For Paul, there was only one gospel. Only one. Christ preached it. He gave it to the apostles. He gave it personally to Paul. Paul wrote the Gospel in the New Testament. And through the Word of God, it was passed down to generations of leaders in the Christian church. Men like Polycarp, Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, Augustine, Wycliffe, John Haas, Tyndale, Luther, Whitfield, Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. And it's been given down to us. And are we now going to prop ourselves the arbiter of truth and dictate what the truth is? Are we going to change it around and contextualize it for our postmodern secular climate? Or are we going to be stewards just like these men and herald the gospel, knowing that it is the truth and that we're just here to pass it down faithfully to this generation of lost people? Paul says, the gospel is is a truth. It is not to be changed. It is not up for human manipulation. Now, why is the gospel the only truth? Why is it so, Paul? What about the gospel of this guy, or the gospel of that guy? Why is this gospel the truth? Paul gives us four reasons. Number one, unity of Christ and His gospel. The unity of Christ... And his gospel. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. And notice that pronoun. Him. The word deserting there is a military term. That means someone is abandoning one's position in a battle line. Anyone did that in the army is punishable by death. You have a front. You're holding a line. And if someone abandons his post, then you're abandoning the whole army. The whole army is vulnerable to to attack. That's the term that Paul is using. It indicates that the Galatian believers were voluntarily deserting, defecting away. Not from a doctrinal point. Not from a theological issue. But they were deserting Christ. Deserting Christ. Him, Paul says. What it tells us, when someone rejects the gospel, he's not rejecting a system of doctrine. He's not choosing one possible uh, 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 point as opposed to another. That person is deserting God Himself. He or she has transferred their loyalty to the enemy. From the one, the person that saved him, he is transferred his loyalty to the enemy. The first reason why the gospel is the truth, the only truth. Secondly, the origin is with Christ. The origin of the gospel is with God. It came by direct revelation from God. Go down with me to a few verses, to verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached it's not something that man made up i did not receive it from any man nor was i taught it rather i received it by revelation from jesus christ gospel is true because it was given by god not by man thirdly it is emphatically powerful emphatically powerful it is an efficacious gospel it accomplishes its intended purpose. Verse 6 again, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of God. That word called refers to the act by which the Holy Spirit savingly applies the gospel to a spiritually dead sinner and transforms his heart. There are two aspects, two features of calling Right. Now first is that general call. When you and I go out to the world and we share the gospel, we're calling people to come to Christ. Indiscriminate preaching of the gospel. We don't know who the elect are. We have no idea. We have zero clue. So we indiscriminately proclaim the gospel, pass our tracks, invite them to Christ. That's a general call. What Paul is talking about in verse 6 is the second aspect of the call, which is the special call. It is the work of God. As we proclaim the Word of God, the Holy Spirit takes these truths and applies them to a heart that is dead. Spiritually dead. And God calls that person, meaning He transforms that person's heart. He saves him from death, rescues him from the mud and the mire. And calls him to himself. It is efficacious. It is potent. It is powerful. It is not, will you come? It is come. And when God says come, it is, as the reformer said, irresistible. It is, it is law. It is decreed. He calls his elect, and the elect come to him. It is that call that Paul is talking about. That is why the gospel is the truth. Because it is the work of God called upon the elect whereupon they turn to Him. John 15:16, 16 Paul, Christ tells the disciples you did not choose me but I chose you. Right? I, he didn't call me. No man seeks after God but I called you. Romans 11:29, for God's gifts and call are irrevocable. Right? They can't, they're irresistible cannot be turned aside. Compare the powerful gospel of God, Paul says, to the false gospel, which has no power. This heteros gospel has no regenerative powers, has no ability to convert and restore a sinner to God. The false gospel will, will, will bring no one to faith, no one to salvation. He says in verse 7, it is no gospel at all. He says, let's reason here. That's, that's the old gospel. Meaning, it's old news. It's been heard before. It is not the gospel that saves. Fourth reason is uh, the narrow definition. Fourth reason the gospel is true is that it has narrow, it's narrow definition the Gospel is very narrowly defined in the Scriptures. Right? The meaning is also very narrow. That's why all these Gospels can't be the truth. Right? That's why, you know, if it works for you, great, because the definition is wide. Whatever works for you, no. The Gospel, truth, by definition, is very narrow. Well, people think, hey James, you know, why you guys you guys know, harp on doctors so much and, preach so long and F.O.F. and maybe flock and Bible three sermons in one day. You guys are like crazy. And then retreats and you guys study so much. Why? What's the big deal? Circumcision. Right? Free will. Baptismal regeneration. A person saved by good works. As long as our hearts are riled. James, why are you getting getting so riled up? You know why? Turn to Galatians 5. Right? You know, just, let's just read verse 2. I, one verse for you guys. Paul says, mark my words. Galatians two. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Christ is of no value. The principle there is, if anyone assigns anything outside of Christ as aiding them in their salvation, as a part of the gospel, if anyone adds anything, anything, even a small thing like circumcision, or baptism, or free will, if anyone adds anything, at at that point, at that instant, Christ is valueless. There is no value in Christ. It is... uh, Grace mixed with works, this adulterated gospel, this synthetic gospel. If anyone embraces that at that point, Christ died for nothing Galatians two twenty one. You know, I, I really believe that. You know, I'm hoping this that many are adulterating the gospel because they don't realize that they're adulterating the gospel that they're they're making Christ um, valueless. Maybe there are a few out there that are realizing it, are intentionally perverting the gospel, but it is my hope that there are many well-meaning people, even in the church, that are just not realizing what they're doing, the significance, the tragic significance of, of their false gospel. This heteros gospel is so bad. Verse 8 and 9, there is an eternal curse on anyone who preaches this false gospel Paul knows that other gospel very well for it is the very doctrine that Paul was liberated from remember he was a Pharisee he lived his life in this religious system of salvation by works these Judaizers were trying to add to the gospel of grace by adding works he knows what they are talking about He says, anyone who preaches this gospel is accursed. And it's happening today. There is no new uh, heresy. There is no new false doctrine. It's been around ever since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It's around today. The Mormon Church, the Jehovah Witnesses, the L.A. Church of Christ, the Roman Catholic Church, where they add all these things to the gospel. And at, what, at any point, any of these works is added, the gospel is perverted. Another way of perverting the gospel is by subtraction. These false teachers, they don't add to the gospel, they take things out. Easy believism. Just pray this prayer and you're saved. Just, just say these words, just mouth these words, walk down the aisle and once saved, always saved. Or non-Lordship salvation. You don't have to trust Christ as Lord. He's your Savior. He loves you. And later on, if you want, you can make Him Lord of your life. But that's optional. You don't have to repent of sin. That's optional to be a Christian. They take out denying yourself. They take out taking up the cross following him, they water down the gospel and they dilute it and by that they make it a false gospel. That's what gave Paul the boldness for the gospel. It is the only truth. There are others out there propagating the false truth and he knew that the gospel was the only truth that would save lost sinners and that gave him boldness. We ought to think about that. That God has entrusted to us the message that saves. And this is it. This is the only antidote. This is the only solution. There is no way into heaven outside of this message. This is the only hope for this world. And you and I are the stewards of it. At the very same time, there are others that are preaching false doctrine. False gospel, leading people away, leading to bondage, ought to have the same effect in us. As for Apostle Paul, grant us boldness. Second reason for Paul's boldness was that he was preaching the gospel not to win the approval of men, but God. He was preaching the gospel not to win the approval of men, but God. This is great. This is so awesome. Verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Right. Am I deserting Christ now? Am I trying to please you guys by rebuking you? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to be, trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That second sentence, he is reiterating what Christ said. You can't serve two masters. You can't. It is impossible. You either serve Christ or you serve Christ's enemy. You either serve God or you serve yourself. You either please God or you're pleasing men. And by now, why? Because his motivation was being called into question. He was accused of false motivation, of selfish interests, that he's trying to be popular. Popularity seeker. Paul, shares, Paul says, No. I am not trying to please man. And here is proof. Galatians 2, 3 through 21. Let's just read the section together. Paul shares from his life. He supports his stand. He gives evidence that he is not trying to win the approval of men. Galatians 2, 3. He says, Titus was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Why? Because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves again. Verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment. As for those who seemed to be important, meaning they were men who were apostles of Christ, who were disciples of Christ, lived with Christ, ministered with Christ, important men, apostles, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. These men added nothing to my message. These men, they weren't the originators of the gospel. They didn't add to the gospel at all. And it's all from Christ. Therefore, go on to verse 11. When Peter, when Apostle Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How was it then that you forced these Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We know that a man is justified, not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Because by observing the law, no one is justified. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. Where righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Here's my proof, Paul says, that I'm not trying to please men. Here is the Apostle Peter. And when he went and against the Gospel... And when he undermined the gospel, I rebuke Peter. Do you think I'm going to turn to you the Church of Galatia and allow you to get away with perverting the gospel? If I rebuke Peter, you better believe I'm going to rebuke you guys, because I'm not judged by external appearances, and I am not trying to please man. Paul understood that someone who is ruled by men's opinions cannot be a servant of Christ. Paul understood that. That's why he gave him so much boldness for the gospel. Because he was living to please God and not man when a man cares more about what people think than what God thinks, when a man fears other men more than God, when a man constantly tries to win people's opinions, people's approval and affirmation, at that time he is a slave to man and not to God. Proverbs 29.25 Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I think at this stage of our Christian lives, I think we've seen this, right? We've all seen a degree of this in our lives. I have it in my heart. something I wrestle with. Fighting against, trying to please people. We've seen it in our own hearts, and we've seen it in others. Right? It's an awful thing, is it not? When I see it in myself, it is awful. It is pathetic. It is disgusting. In my own heart, I see the danger of it that if I am tempted to please man rather than God, if I care more about what the church thinks rather than what God thinks, when I see signs of this in my life where I'm concerned for my reputation, where I'm self-conscious, where I want to be liked, I want to be accepted, or when I'm tempted Paul calls this a clear, number one symptom of pleasing man. When I see this in my own life, flattery. Flattery, Paul says, is a clear sign that you're fearing man. Chapter 2, 3 through 5. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we are not again trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts, and how does He defend himself here? By going to the first symptom, first sign of men pleases, verse five. You know, we never use flattery. We never use flattery. We never unduly complimented or insincerely try to win gain by using flattery upon people. D. Edmund Hebert defines this conniving art of flattery in this way, quote, repeating carefully crafted and positioned words, aimed at making a favorable impression to gain influence over others for self-centered reasons, end quote. Saying words carefully, positionally, to gain influence for self-centered reasons. Paul says, we never use flattery to gain influence for ourselves. Two reasons for Paul's boldness. These are lessons for us. We are, in light of what we have, in light of the truths that we know, what we have learned, we ought not be timid men and women of God. We ought to be on fire. I mean, if anybody out there is on fire for the gospel, it ought to be us. That we would understand that the gospel is the only truth for the dying world. And that we are here not to please man, but to please God. A few final thoughts for us. Let's start with our last point. Who do you fear in life? What is your greatest fear? Right. What is your greatest fear in life? You fear rejection by people? Rejection by cornerstone? Right. Are you jealous of others? Are you ruled by husband, wife, coworker, son, daughter? Are you ruled by people? People that don't even know you, that don't even care for you? Right? Are you trying to please people and live for others? Or are you so full of reverence for God, desiring to please God, that you have no room to fear anyone else, anything else? Right? Secondly, um, do you see the compromise? that others are making towards the gospel? Are you careful to preach the right gospel? Do you you take care that it's not the minimal truth to the masses of people, but the most truth possible to every person possible? That God is the creator. That our crime is we sinned against God. The cost is that there is physical separation from God, spiritual separation from God, and eternal separation. That is the cost of our sins. The cross, Christ is the only remedy. That Jesus, demonstra- God demonstrated His love for us now that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. That He's our only hope. And the call is to repent of sin and believe in Christ. Are you careful to preach the right? Right, Gospel? Are you a student of the Scriptures? Are you careful to cut straight the Word of God? And then finally, do you see the unity of the Gospel and Christ? And this is the message that saved us. That Christ came, the Son of God, God in flesh, the thrice holy God, came clothed in flesh, that's a mortal man. After living a perfect life, he died on the cross for our sins. That is the gospel, and that is the gospel, gospel of Christ that saved you and saved me. Do we see that unity, the preciousness, the value of that gospel? It is my prayer. I believe Bob will join me. It is our prayer as elders at Cornerstone that we are definitely... T- unbalanced in terms of our knowledge and our application we are a body that is definitely leaned on knowing but we lack doing as uh, Ramirez prayed yesterday may we put feet upon these truths and live it out by being day in and day out bold for the gospel of Christ and proclaiming it indiscriminately to all those who would hear let's pray Our Father, there's such a tendency for our emotions to, to deceive us, the excitement of experience to deceive us, to think that somehow um, we are, we are, we've accomplished something. or help us to be sober in light of the rich teachings we heard yesterday and seeing Paul's life and Paul's boldness this morning. Help us to be sober, to have Um, humble commitment and boldness to the gospel of Christ, that we would see it, uh, that we would follow through upon this as we have compassion towards this world and that we would herald the gospel faithfully to all who would hear. Lord, the gospel is the only truth, the only hope for this lost world. Throughout this world, all men are streaming towards an eternal death, eternal separation from You, headed towards hell. And this is the only message that saves. Lord, may we set aside the snare of pleasing man and embrace the call to please You in all things. And though we might suffer, though we might have to pay a cost, though it might have negative implications upon us and our family, May we consider our lives worth nothing if only we may testify to the gospel of God's grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.